Hey, the actual podcast will start in a second. But there were two things I wanted to uh, mention that I didn't get to mention when I talked to Seth. One, uh, I mispronounced his name in the real intro. It's Seth Godin. So we have that straight now. Embarrassing that uh, I missed it, being such a fan of his. And two, Seth has a new book coming out. So if you're interested in all the stuff that he's talking about, it's called What to Do When It's Your Turn. And if you go to sethgodin.com, you can find information about it. I think it's, um, I know I've already pre-ordered it. All right, the actual show starts now. And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Thanks again for getting in touch with me online and letting me know that you dig the show and letting me know what you dig about it. And um, if you want to tell me not to use a word like dig, I'll accept that. I'll accept that that's not a word a grown man should use or should ever have used. I use it too much. I guess I dig using it. Okay, today's uh, guest is Seth Godden. Seth is unquestionably one of the biggest cultural influencers uh, walking around today. The guy has done three of the most popular TED Talks uh, of all time. He's, oh, he just arrived. He said, just come walk on in, man. Just walk in. Normally, see, this is why God is so great, because he knows, he does his thing, and he knows that uh, I do an intro before the guest comes in. So he's like, no, I'm going to change the conversation. I'm going to influence the conversation by coming in first. I'm sorry, did I mess things up? No, it's great. Okay. Come in, sit. I was just saying that you're a huge cultural influencer. Um, and that uh, you've done these incredible TED Talks, that you've written all these bestsellers, and I was going to say that uh, your work has influenced me a lot. And uh, in the way uh, I think about communicating and in examining the reasons for communicating. Well, that's very kind of you to say. And I really appreciate your being here. Um, We're going to – let's stop for one second and get uh, Seth some headphones. And then we'll start the podcast proper. What do the headphones do for me? Well, I think they'll let you hear. But I can hear you. You're fine without them? I'm totally fine. I'm having a conversation with you. All right, good. Let's charge. I, for some reason, I like the headphones. It's all good. It makes you look professional. Well, maybe it just makes me feel... Maybe it makes me feel It's a good look for you, actually. Do you think I should just rock this look on the streets? Well, In general? As long as they're not Beats. Right. I've heard you talk about Beats. Yeah. Uh... And you, but when I've heard you talk about him, you, you talked about him in, in almost um, celebrating the thought behind, you know, that if you want to sell headphones, um, you should look at what they've done. Oh, yeah. If you want to make headphones that sound good, that's not the point, right? Just like you shouldn't go to Chanel if you want something to wear at the marathon. The purpose of Chanel is to say, I'm a member of the tribe. I can afford these. Look at me. And that's what beats are, right? Beats were never designed to sound good. They were designed to be noticed, and that's why Sennheiser and Koss and, and Grado missed it, because they made all these decisions for what they thought of as quality. But we have a lot of confusion about what quality means, and quality doesn't necessarily mean better the way you think of as better. It might just mean sticking to what I think of as better. Right. Um but, uh, and I and you learned this lesson, uh, I guess, uh, in uh, a hard way when you you know put your uh, 
those records out for people who had twenty thousand dollar yeah. uh, turntables, right? Because what what did you learn? Well, first of all, if I've completely hijacked your agenda, we don't have to talk about any of this because it's off the topic. Maybe I don't know. I don't know what the topic is, but I'm happy to riff on anything you want. Great. No, I but. No, I mean, I, I don't mind talking about the headphones because the way you look at the world and how you've trained yourself to look at the world is something I'm really interested in. Okay. And, and, and particularly how you um, process success and failure, how you measure and process. All right. So there's two topics on the table. And the first is learning to see the world as it is, differentiating between semiotics and tribal behavior and marketing and branding and hype versus what it is that you want. And I think that as people start to learn to see that way, the clarity is really fascinating because a lot of people don't like it. They get very upset, for example, when you talk to them about placebos. I love placebos. Right. I think that placebos are the finest medicine ever invented. They're inexpensive. They have no side effects. You can't overdose on them. And in many cases, like back pain, they are the single most effective means of treatment we have. But when you say to somebody, paying extra for wine makes wine taste better, and it does, because you paid extra, not because expensive wine is actually better, people get very upset at that because it makes them feel like they've been defrauding themselves. Well, because you're talking about what triggers the dopamine. Mm-hmm. And uh, the endorphins and how these various things can change the body chemistry. But it does inch either closer or further away from a matrix-like society. That's where in a we way, live. Which is, which is why the blue pill is a painful pill to take at first yeah. until you appreciate the clarity. Right. And what's interesting is, so I have clarity, but I also have $150 speaker cables. Now, I know what $150 speaker cables are, and I still buy them because it makes me happy. Well, yeah, it's, I get it because, like, okay, I don't, um, I don't have Beats now. I, and it's interesting, you know, Beats make people want to listen to more music because they like how just putting them on makes them feel. You could say even though people are paying for them, you could say it's a placebo. It's, it's actually maybe not because it's a booster of, of sorts. It's a, a connector. It does. I mean, what's music for? It doesn't feed your family. What it's for is it makes you happy. It makes you feel connected. Yes. It, it, it changes all sorts of things about us. But I've decided uh, that I like these Sennheisers that I wear. And I've done, like, um, my own research and a b these things. And like you spent a lot of time around music and in the music business. But I also do know at a bedrock uh, level, I've carried around this received wisdom that Sennheiser makes the best headphones. Sure. So it makes you feel good that you're the kind of person that can wear, not only can afford them, but is smart enough to buy them. Yeah, which is another which makes crock. makes them sound better. Which might be another crock. Yeah. And, and I'm fascinated by all of this because I, I think we can set aside for a little while the moral discussion about whether it's wasteful, whether it's fraudulent, et cetera, and just look at the fact that we are wet machines that are easily programmed and reprogrammed which leads to the second thing you want to talk about, about definitions of success, because that's another form of self-marketing. Yes, it is. It's, uh, and so you asked what this is all about. 
Like the the thing that I, you know, you and I had this conversation before I started a podcast where I came to you and, and asked you for some advice about different things because I really love the way you think and uh, articulate those thoughts. Um, and I, in drilling down, I realized that what really animates me is um, figuring out how people who accomplish remarkable things process the big moments in their lives. Mm-hmm. Because you can do case studies. You can learn... I think from that and because there are, I think if you investigate it sort of deeply and widely enough, you can find patterns that you can apply across various different areas. Yeah, for sure. And you're someone who has spent a lot of time trying things, failing, learning, succeeding. And that's why I thought you'd be a great person to, to talk to. And that's, and that covers a, a lot of terrain, right? Because there's sure. success and failure and all sorts of different areas. And so you were just asking about uh, success and defining it. The first question that I wrote down, um, and I, I don't really stick to what I've written down, but it's a good place to, to jump off in a way, um, is how did you, Seth, begin the process of um, deciding what really mattered to you? I think that uh, most people go through two processes. There's the first naive process that happens before we are aware we're having this conversation, often when we're a teenager or even younger. And that is uh, a much more almost mindful way to go about it because you're not having a narrative about should I have a conversation about what's important to me? You're just living. And so I think that early events, parents, the culture we grow up in informs a lot of what we think of as what, matters. what we're going to do. Right. But I'm wondering, I wonder if that, you you almost framed it like that's more pure in a way, but I wonder, I wonder if that's reactive as opposed to, I wonder if that initial burst of things that matter after, you know, you're very young, food and your parents sure. love, right? I mean, your parents' love is something you end up becoming reactive to also. But I, what I wonder is if before you – most people, I think, don't even go past that reactive exactly. stage. So that, where I'm going, first of all, well, let's, yes. I got to bring in a little zig here. Zig Ziglar famously talked about the difference between react and respond. The doctor says you're responding to the medicine. That's good. If she says you're reacting, that's bad. So there's some baggage with the word reactive. I think it's responsive. I think that the way most of us grow up, we are responding to inputs. We are not just sitting there with a blank sheet of paper having a Sartre-like internal dialogue, right? So that's a, a big factor in everybody's life. Some people then decide to have a second discussion with themselves. And that discussion is, all right, like Kal-El, I'm on this planet and I've got a head start. Right? I have powers far beyond those of many other people. I am very lucky I didn't grow up in a slum. I'm very lucky it's not 1642. I'm very lucky that I had all these advantages. There's nothing physically much wrong with me. So when you realize all that, then you sometimes are lucky enough to have a conversation with yourself that might last for decades that says, well, what game do I want to play? How am I going to keep score? And what's important? So what happened for me uh, is I was an entrepreneur from the time I was 14, ran a business when I was in college. That got me into Stanford as, as one of the younger 
people at the business school. And right about then I said, all right, well, there are these tools that are becoming available to me. Do I want to go work for Bain and McKinsey? Right. Is it important? I'm surrounded by people who are a couple years older than me, all of whom are more successful than me on many metrics. Do I want to make more money than them? Do I want to fly around the world? Do I want people to to uh, look at me with respect? How do I make that decision? And that summer job is a very important summer job. It's only a two-year program. Where will you work this summer? If, to go even slightly more granular into that process, that moment for you of deci- of decision, of recognition and then decision, what kind of steps did you take in figuring that out? I mean, were you just walking around uh, sort of daydreaming? Did you start journaling? Did you, like, what happened that helped you frame, okay, there, I'm at, I mean, you knew you were at Stanford, you were a bright person, but what sort of tangible steps did you take to lay this all out for yourself, if any? Well, so I guess it started uh, a year or so before that. I had been spending a couple of years just being unhappy about various cycles that I would remind myself that weren't working. Those people aren't respecting you. Your social life is inadequate. Oh, there it is again. Right? So I went for one, two, three, four, five, six years in a row. Every time I ran for any student government post, I lost every single time. Right? I mean, there, you could keep track of these things if you wanted to. Right. Six years. It's important to note that's a long time yeah. to be repeating this pattern. Yeah, well, I didn't start repeating it until three, a few years into it, but it was certainly at least two years of me saying, oh, there it goes again, kind of thing. And I, I went for a very long uh, car ride to visit my sister in North Carolina from Boston. And I carpooled with somebody who was depressive. And so we had like nine hours in the car to right. talk. And I saw sort of an example of what that self-talk could lead to because she was self-talking even more than I was self-talking. And she was a depressive, so she was self-talking into a downward spiral. Right, exactly. And you noticed it. Oh, yeah. That was a big moment of distinction for you. That's right. And the, the good, you know, I grew up with ADD. Being in a car for nine hours, it forces you to focus. You'll get killed on the road. And you, you can only do one thing, which is, you know, drive two things, drive and talk to the person next to you. So I did. And got down to visit my sister and was sufficiently open to the world, tired, and uh, moved by that conversation that the next day, because my sister didn't want to spend the whole day with me, there was just a long walk around the campus. And like, oh, that, yeah, that thing, you're doing it again. Just stop doing that. And having a conversation with myself that said, I want to be in charge of this internal monologue. Oh, that's awesome. That's a gr- I only have ever said this out loud. You're that, a great interviewer. Thank you. That's that's. I'm very curious. So that that's um, that moment, uh, which was a pattern interrupt, right? That's what people would call that a pattern interrupt. Sure. And you were able to recognize and do it to yourself. And when you did that, what was the message you replaced the? Because the first thing is to interrupt the pattern, and the second thing is the new message. Right. What was the new message? Well. I would say that the new message didn't happen the same day. Oh, of course, right. Right? The, the first thing you say is, uh, and this is classic cognitive behavioral therapy, which I didn't know at the time, uh, 
which I strongly recommend to anybody who's in a rut. You don't have to go very many times, but it's really a useful tool. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, as opposed to psychotherapy, which there are purposes for, for, for which psychotherapy is incredibly valuable, but for certain things, patterns especially, OCD right. type things, uh, there are ways that cognitive behavioral therapy uh, really interrupts patterns and teaches you new behaviors, which shockingly, to people who don't expect this, change the way you think yeah. for the better. Um, it's true. Yeah. And I, the simple example that I tell people, friend uh, had a five-year-old who had significant OCD. He was washing his hands for five hours a day at the sink. Um, That's it, at least a half hour too many. <laughs> at least. And uh, it turns out that in that particular case of OCD, there's seven seconds during which it is an insurmountable, uncontrollable urge. And if you can get through seven seconds, it will go away. So all that they had to do was make a game. So every time the kid felt like washing his hands, they did something, I don't remember what it was, that stalled for 11 seconds, and then he didn't want to wash his hands anymore. And they replaced one pattern with another pattern, which freed him to create a whole new uh, explanation in his own mind about why he needed to wash hands. What's, what's so powerful about that is that it seems... It, it almost seems like what you're saying is too simple to be true. That's why people, cognitive behavioral therapy is weird to people because it's so basic. It's like playing with blocks in a way. But, and, and especially when behaviors become so entrenched, the person um, whose behavior is thusly entrenched can't imagine there's a simple solve. Right. Because they feel in the, in the grips of that seven seconds over and over again. It doesn't feel like seven seconds. Right. Of course. Because it's repeated. Right. I've seen it with people who, uh, with whom I'm distantly related. That's why I know about it, too. I dove in and I saw the same result that, that you saw. All right, so here's the big... But let's go back well, to... So I have to just yes. say the most profound part of our whole talk here. Uh, we're in ESPN Studios. And in ESPN Studios, what happens is play-by-play. -play, that something is going on on the field, and Howard Cosell or Danny Don Meredith or whoever is doing it these days describes the play on the field. Everyone understands this. What would happen if all we did was broadcast a TV thing and delay the video by four seconds? Keep the audio, delay the video by four seconds. Here's what would happen. The play-by-play -play announcer would say, Jim Kelly back in the pocket going to pass. And then you would see Jim Kelly go back in the pocket and go back to pass. That would be so weird, right? We expect that what the play-by-play -play does is tell us after. Our brains it turns out, work exactly the same way. And Dan Dennett has written about this brilliantly, Professor Tufts, you can read the data. Um, the, the voice in our head, the one that tells us we're, what we are about to decide to do next, says it after we have already decided. It says, oh, I'm sort of hungry, after our body has already decided we are hungry, not before. We don't get to say something in that voice in our head and then do it. We do it and then we make an explanation afterwards, a microsecond afterwards, to explain that to ourselves that we're not crazy, right? So someone cuts you off in traffic, you lean on the horn, you think that what happened was you said to yourself, that jerk, I'm going to, no, actually you decided to honk and then you made up a whole narrative. Once you do that, this is so freeing to understand because what it means is all the narrative is what drives you crazy. It's all invented. You don't have to have the narrative if you don't want to have the narrative. And you can change. You can actually, if you're aware of it, you can change the narrative. You know, Josh Waitzkin talks about in his in his book, The Art of Learning. I don't know if you've ever read it. Waitzkin is the guy searching for Bobby Fischer is about. Mm -hmm. 
but his life didn't stop when the movie stopped. And he became a world champion at uh, martial, certain kind of martial arts, and, and he's a brilliant person. And um, in, in his book, he talks about when you compound a mistake by being by reacting and letting that voice change. When you let that voice drive the narrative, it leads Correct. to um, reaffirming behavior. Correct behavior that reaffirms that that first bad choice. Because if um, if I was if I was right to make the first bad choice, I have to double down. Right. And that if we can just interrupt that pattern, exactly. we can save ourselves a tremendous amount of time and hurt. Exactly. His books, you would love his book. I'm going to check it's it out. It's brilliant and carefully written. So that leads to the thing I saw online two days ago that made me think of you, not because you were in it, but because people who want to be you were in it. Um, the Academy made this video of interviewing a whole bunch of screenwriters in coffee shops. Oh, that's cool. And they might be really talented, but there's no way to tell from the video. What you can tell from the video is that they are in love with being struggling screenwriters. And they are making choices every day to continue to be struggling screenwriters. How, what gave that away to you? Well, it's tribal behavior. It's the, the mantra of the, you know, I'm on my 44th screenplay kind of thing, telling the story, rehearsing the story of, I am a struggling screenwriter, look around the coffee shop, we're all here in this together. That's who we yes. are. Like you, I'm a skeptic of uh, a lot of self-help and a lot of uh, carny games, but one of the great, to me, Anthony Robbins has a lot of, says a lot of things that are true, because he's mm -hmm. done a lot of work to figure it out. Sure. And he constantly talks about the story we tell ourselves. Yeah. And it's one of the truest things. And I see it uh, I see it online as I interact with people in this area of trying to help them unlock their creativity, which is something you care a lot about also. It's that they'll you'll say to them, here's why um, saying I have here's why saying um, asking the question, how do I get an agent is the wrong question. Here are the things you have to do um, to your work and to yourself to make to flip the equation and to make it that an agent is asking the question, how do I find that person? Correct. And you'll go through the whole thing and you'll back it up with evidence, narrative, your own story, another person's story, yep. and you'll get to the end and they'll say, right. But how do I get an but agent? But how do I get an agent? Exactly. And, you know, the, the other part of the narrative is this stupid industry, it doesn't like buying things like I write from people like me. And if that's true, switch industries, as opposed to living out this public lesson that's not making anybody happy and making you miserable. Especially now, but I, I, especially now when there, when um, the industry is only, there is no reason in the world to accept the um, the common wisdom about what defines the industry. Sure. Uh, because all you need to do is uh, a piece of work that connects with some group of people, and you need to get it to those people. And, and that... You need to get it to three of those people, they'll get it to the rest. Well, I've seen it. I mean, uh, we've both seen this play out in life, but, it, you know, when people um, look... when I mean, you're better at understanding this. You've spent a lifetime chasing this. I mean, what do you think prevent... What's the pain that people find... What is it that people find so painful in the kind of change required to drop that story? 
we, our ancestors have been here for millions of years. The only way that our great, 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 great grandparents existed long enough to have children was to avoid change. That that is the key element of success in the survival of species is creatures that expose themselves to unpredictable change become extinct and creatures that find a safe sinecure have more kids. So that's about as hardwired as we've got. And so, you know, I, I tell the story of you have a, uh, a degree in aeronautical engineering. You know that no plane in history has crashed because of turbulence at 30,000 feet. Never once. You're on the plane. You're writing an important memo. The plane hits turbulence. What do you do? Well, what you do is you close the laptop and use your entire force of will to keep the plane aloft. Lucky for everyone else that you were on the plane to do that because otherwise it would have gone down. You know it's not doing any good. You just paid to go on a roller coaster last week. Enjoy it, as my friend John Dale says. You're in turbulence. You know nothing bad's going to happen. Enjoy that moment, but we can't because that moment represents change, and change represents threat, and threat represents fear. And so we. It's a version of fight or flight, which, uh, you know, people say, talk to athletes about performance and controlling through breathing, even. The, chemi- the, the release of the chemicals, which, which then um, manifests in the narrative that has to satisfy the, right. the chemical And surge. so what people like you have and what people like me have is we have redefined change. And so I would be miserable if someone made me move to Cleveland, Paris, some beautiful city. It doesn't matter what, where because that's not the kind of change I signed up for. I do my best work with that certain pattern. But I would also be miserable if I had to write the same blog post every single day and have a boss because I've defined change in a way that says that's just a rhythm and that rhythm of projects, one project after another project, that's what fuels me. But I don't view it the way other people view change, those changes. I view those changes like breathing. Right. There, there, are, there are some changes that you somehow have not only built up. There are some for which you're intolerant. Even you or even I am uh, intolerant to them uh, because, right, a change is a death of someone you love is a change. So, and that, right, that is a change in, uh, in circumstance. It's actually, um, in a certain way, it's not, right? It's, it's all how you tell yourself the story about that event. But we would feel a whole bunch of stuff that Correct. would be painful. But, uh, and, and it's not that I want to say this, and I'm sure you feel this way. I, I have this as a question to you. Uh, does it still feel like a risk when you try something new, Seth? Well, see, let's talk about what new means. Sure. If I write a blog post that I believe is outside the comfort zone of what my readers expect from me, yeah, that feels like a risk. If I write a blog post that doesn't feel that way to me, it's, there's, nothing, there's no hesitation. When I decide about a project that's going to take a year or three years of my life, I won't do one unless it feels like a risk. It's just a different kind of, it's not the existential risk my narration told me I was facing when I was 27, because that risk was, if this doesn't work, I have to go get a job as a bank teller. But you did it anyway. Yes, but it was a different thrill. Now that existential risk I've eliminated because I refuse to put all the chips on the table when I do a project. It's a intellectual Because you've spent a lifetime uh, amassing the chips. Because I hated... There are plenty of people who have spent a lifetime amassing whatever chips they have. I hated that feeling. You mean the feeling of being so close to a desperate place? Yeah. 
And so I've organized my life so I don't have that feeling anymore. Other people are hooked on that feeling. Right, that's what I was going to say. So for you, the feeling of working without a net, you're more creative if there's some net. Absolutely. Than you are without a net. Correct. And then there are some, Philippe Petit can't have a net. Right, he has to work well, without a net. Well, you know, but it's interesting. If you read Philippe's new book... I read his, I've read, um, his first book's one of my favorite books ever, actually. The, the one with the, the sketches about, the, yeah. The very first one about how he became a tightrope walker. Paul yes. Auster did the translation. Yes, I read it book. 25 years it's ago. And it's, it's one of the truest books about becoming an artist I've ever read in my life. Yes. But the new book I saw, but since I'm thinking in that area a lot, I didn't want to read it yeah. yet. With, with apologies to Philippe, it's his weakest book in my experience. And yes, it always takes bravery to put a book in the world. But what it felt like to me was there were nets involved, that he did things in the book to protect himself, his psyche, the story he was telling. Not He didn't write a pedestrian book at it by any means. He's not a pedestrian. He wrote a book that breaks certain conventions but could have gone in so many really useful directions. And it felt to me, as someone who's older as well, like he's really risked his life for a really long time He's entitled for this to be more of a testament, but he, like me, like you, we're starting to get into the net thing. In your movie uh, about poker, that movie's all about being hooked on living without a net. I see that movie, and I can look... It was Matt, right? Yeah. I look Matt in the eye, and I say, I'm so glad I didn't become you, because there's all sorts of societal pressure to become you. And there was part of me that wanted that feeling again. But choosing uh, to walk away from it was one of the most important decisions I made. Choosing to walk away from the, the feeling that you were uh, risking everything when you dove into a new endeavor. Correct. Because you got a thrill from that, actually. Yes. And you, were, you felt yourself becoming susceptible to being addicted to that feeling. You know, I mean, look at Jeff Koons, right? Right. I'm glad, uh, that, Jeff, example I'm glad that Jeff stuck it out. But twice he's gone almost bankrupt. Twice he's gone too far. And one of the reasons is he's an artist. And he needs, if he hadn't gone too far, if he had just kept making inflatable plastic flowers, he wouldn't be an artist. He'd be a charlatan, right? That the only reason the show at the Whitney works, as far as I'm concerned, I grew up with contemporary art, is because... Here's a guy who didn't say, how am I going to get $50 million for my next stupid idea? But instead said, I care so much about this idea. I'm willing to have 80 people work on it for seven years and it might not work. He went farther than anyone could go in that thing. But every chip he had on the table, probably because he's addicted to that feeling. Well, you wonder, or he's addicted to the search. It depends how pure you think the art yeah. is, right? So for me, I look at Bob Dylan as somebody who... The search has never ended, mm -hmm. and it, it it may sometimes end up in something that's bankrupt. He'll he won't be bankrupt because of the songs, but that, but that enough of the time, we will be rewarded for his risks. That I want that person to keep taking those risks. Trent Reznor, you could say the same thing. But, that, but let's, let's look at Bob because Bob is a working artist. He's not just that's right. He's not Jim Morrison, right? So Jim Morrison wasn't a professional. Jim Morrison was an amateur hack who a lot of people admired because he was willing to die in front of us. Yes. But he was not a professional. If he was a professional, he'd still be around. What Bob did when the Vietnam War came along was not act like someone whose passion was completely on fire without regard for whether there was a net. 
he made the choice of what to do as a working musician. I refuse to believe that Bob didn't care about the Vietnam War. I think that what he decided to do was to say, I need to keep shipping my work. Shipping his work, and by the way, um, moving forward as an art. I view it as he he decided I have to move forward in my my work. But um, people can get a lot about the way you process and think about this stuff through all your work. And I'm, I'm interested in just going back for a second to how you develop the critical faculty yourself. Um, and so when you looked at the world after taking that long walk, what did you start to do to build a new message for yourself? Well, it was mostly intuitive because a lot of this writing that is so influenced you and me didn't exist then, right? Um, you know, I played a board game a little while ago with a 12-year-old, and when it wasn't going well, it overwhelmed him because it wasn't a game, right? When you and I play a board game, it's clearly a game. And so I can play Monopoly totally differently than I used to play Monopoly. That is true when you do marketing. That is true when you start projects. That is true when you engage in getting into whatever institution or getting someone to meet with you. It's a game. It's not personal. They don't actually know you. No one knows you. And so you say, well, how does this game get played for the long haul? And Jim Carr's book about infinite and finite games is really important here. So I don't know that one. Okay. Jim Carr, C-A-R-S-E. The only book that I'm aware of that really caught on. It's from 1970-something. I just missed it. Okay, two kinds of games. Most games that we think of when we think of games are finite. Someone wins. There are rules. It ends. Those are the three key components. Okay? So it's sometimes zero-sum, but soccer is a finite game. Um, But so is dividing a piece of pie. But there's another kind of game called an infinite game. An infinite game is a game that's played to be played. When you're playing catch with your four-year-old, you don't try to win catch, right? You don't try to throw it so the other person will drop it. Yes. Well, Jim argues, and his, the timeliness of this with the Cold War and, and environmentalism is that the most important games are infinite games. And that if we can figure out how to play games to keep playing games as opposed to play games as a uh, referendum on our worth as individuals where we have to win – we can pl- live life a totally different way. You know, the poker players, all the great poker players, realize the infinite game. I mean, they talk about it. It's uh, as a sort of an offshoot or part of game theory, which is that the game, the poker game that the best, the elite poker players are playing, is actually a game that goes on and on and on and on because this one session of the game isn't definitive of anything. All sorts of things have happened that, if you are aware that it's continuing will play out in a year from now when we see one another yep. in an entirely another place. Yep. And it's hard discipline yeah. to put yourself, to gain an awareness of um, both how great and how small the stakes of those things are, right? Right. And, and so we could also have a half-hour conversation about Ricky Jay and the, the world of the con man because they treat outsiders like it's a finite game, insiders like it's an infinite game. But they're also hooked on the thrill. So it's, it's Well, yeah, of course they are. Um, Yes, of course, they're, they're hooked. So there, these books weren't written yet. You were trying to figure out where to go. You realized that the received wisdom wasn't getting you anywhere. Did you start um, just saying, all right, I'm just going to explore what fascinates me? No, I decided that 
the job I wanted to take would be a job in a place that grew. Fast-growing company was key. Didn't matter if I got paid a dollar. How to be a fast-growing company. Because in a fast-growing company, they keep moving the chairs around. And for a 24-year-old, moving chairs around is a good thing because I'm more likely to get a good seat now and then. And I also understood that I could take it very seriously but not take it personally. And that distinction was a huge distinction That's for me. crucial. That... Uh because you were starting to build a sense of what, happy is a loaded word, but you were starting to build a, a sense of what made you feel fulfillment and growth. Right. And, and in noticing it, you were able to go after it. Is that correct? I don't correct, because most people don't notice it, because society keeps pushing them to do the other thing. Right. Society wants obedient cogs. It turns out that... We are so eager to be obedient cogs, we buy that hook, line, and sinker. So many people have said to me, have asked me, what I'm getting paid to do this podcast. They ask me it all the time. I, it was so, it's such a strange question to me because it's so foreign to the way that I yeah. look at the world. I get to sit and talk to you for an hour and ask you what I, I want to and share that with uh, people who I know are going to get something out of it. And then that's going to feed back in some way. And and I, over the last 10 years, have started to think a ton about like, well, what do I want to get out of the day? And this is what I want to get out of the day a lot of the time. Uh, but it's amazing that 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 people only um, – they, they only sometimes want to live within the – like within these lines that have been drawn by others. Mm -hmm. You somehow figured out early on that wasn't – yeah, so what happened professionally then in the, my one and only real job is I discovered lots of people bought into the obedient cog thing, but in many industries, there's a special seat reserved for the person who's the disobedient square peg. And that special seat in many industries is a great place to be. I mean, you, it's funny, you, if you made this realization so long ago, I mean, you wrote about it in Lynchpin, which is only three years ago, uh, only came out three years ago. Right. I guess you, I mean, you'd... Um, obviously alluded to it and talked about it before, but you really sort of codified it. Yeah, no, it was an recently. intentional decision that led to lots and lots of failures because you have to find industries where that approach is welcome, right? So you show up and you say, I want to sell you guys on this idea. And they say, no. Whereas if you showed up and said, I want to sell you on exactly what you bought yesterday, but for one degree difference, they would have said yes. So over and over again, as a book packager, which was my first job after I left Spinnaker, and throughout my professional career, I kept discovering places where I wasn't welcome and places where I was and decided, rather than teaching the other people a lesson, to go to the places where I could do my craft, do my work, do that thing that I had in my head that I wanted to share with people. And you talk a lot about how you, the sort of specific lessons you learn from failure, your presentations include that all the time. You don't talk a lot about how you learned to emotionally process failure. Yeah. And when watching, you might think that you were able to detach instantly, but knowing human beings, I don't think that's really possible. No. So can you walk through how that, how you would deal with it and, and what it, what the process is like for you to absorb and move on. 
I, so we, I think we have to start by talking about the word absorb. If you believe you have to absorb it and move on, you're probably going to fail. What do you mean? So if you and I uh, played a hand of cards, you would win. And I would look at why I lost. But the fact that I lost would not be about me. It would be about my understanding of the power of a full house, blah, blah, blah. That's not personal. I don't have to absorb that. That's right. Right? That's just another data point. Now, when the failures were things I should have known better, when they were a second time of the same lesson, when they were the result of greed or sloppiness or yeah. rushing, then it becomes more personal. Because then the voice in your head is one that says, you're playing a game that you aren't entitled to play because you're not being a professional about this. You, when, when you discover a character defect that led to a failure. Correct. So then that's hard work. But the other work of getting rejected so many times in a row, my first year as a book packager, more than 800 rejections in a row. So I sold the first book the first day. And then letter rejection, letter rejection, letter rejection from all the best publishers in New York City. It took me a year and a half to get the joke and figure out what they were rejecting and why. But at no time during that period did I feel like a bad person. What I felt like was I'm at a table where people are speaking a language I don't understand. I wasn't getting the support I hoped I would be getting from everyone else around me because that's always welcome. Because when you feel like you're letting other people down because yeah. you're not making a living, that's really hard. And at 25, it's 26, it's hard to decode what that that's even possible that you could be treated slightly differently. So one of the things that people who make art must do is find a circle of people around them who aren't yes people, but are people who say, I see what you learned. You're one step closer. Keep going. The, the people with whom you surround yourself, if you're trying to do any sort of creative endeavor, are crucial. And and part of our narrative that we're failures is to the and Julia Cameron talks about this really well is that there's some instinct um, if if the big curse of a creative person is perfectionism and if they know they're going to fall short then they have to find somebody before they get far enough to stop them. Yep. And so we look for that and it's important to 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 draw a line. Most people I know who do something in the arts they found a moment where they were like I'm not going to talk to that person about this. Until I'm done. Right. So, but you're... But let's be really clear. Everyone you know is in the arts now. Well, I... Yes, we're going to... I just put a, I put a pin in that because we're, we're going to come back to We're going to talk about that. No, uh, I would say... Um, I, I agree with you that it's crucial. It's, it's funny. I, I've, I've co-opted a word of yours, maybe your most famous word, which is you talk about permission marketing. And, I mean, tribes is probably your most famous word. Maybe permission is your second most famous word. I wonder what the word cloud would be. Have you looked at what the word cloud for you is? No. Oh, I'm sure someone's built a word cloud. It, uh, but, you know, you talk about permission marketing, um, not being an obnoxious uh, spammer and in, in getting them to want you to market to them. And you changed, I mean, you did change the way people sell things. Um, but I find that uh, when I started talking to people about giving themselves permission to create, Mm -hmm. When they even understood they had to, yep. it it's almost magical in if they can keep reminding themselves 
that they have permission. Right. And so that's why I like to talk about the fact that everyone... Uh, but, I'm, but So, yes, in that way, I understand what you mean, but right. uh, not everybody does give themselves permission. That's their choice. That doesn't change what, they're, what industry they're in. And I guess it depends how you define the word, how you define the word art, which you do at, at length um, in Lynch. I mean, you talk about that in Lynchpin a lot. Uh, but you're... The, the, the question of failure and of like, okay, I get that. You're in this business. You are learning every day. You're 25, 26 years old. Those things you were able to tell yourself and create a practice for yourself where that wasn't. You're going to learn from each one, and eventually you're going to have the answer. But when it's those other things, and by the way, we've been using the word professional. Stephen Pressfield's, the book he wrote after War of Art, talks mm -hmm. a lot about, and in War of Art too, the notion of, being professional and acting like a Turning professional. Turning pro, right. And what that means about how you practice what you do. Um, but the the other kind of failure, have you been able to now, sort of by some transitive property, uh, make it so you view all these things as in the same way? Um, what's actually happened is... Um, one of the worst conversations I have with myself is the failure of opportunity cost. And for those of you who don't have MBAs, opportunity cost says, how much does it cost you uh, to not do something? That when you do this instead of that, right, what was that and what did you give up? I've been very fortunate that my timing and the internet aligned. And so I have a quite a platform and I have plenty, you know, I've worked with tens of thousands of people around the world and I've earned the privilege of engaging with them. So there's an opportunity cost because I didn't start Yahoo, but I could have, right? And there's an opportunity cost because I didn't do that and I didn't do this. So when I think about the platform, the question I bother myself with is, am I wasting it? And there are lots of days where the answer is yes, where I'm hiding from work I could do as a professional, but I'm sufficiently either tired or ambivalent or afraid that I don't do things I could do. And what do you do in those moments when you realize it? Well, I try to learn from that. And the phrase push yourself is such a weird phrase because Newton would make it clear you can't push yourself. Um, but I try to call my bluff, right? And so there's a reason that Permission Marketing Volume 2 and The Son of Purple Cow never got written because those would be easy. And those would be things that I could do that would surely succeed at some level, but wouldn't have the work of a true professional behind them of doing something that might not work. Well, or an artist in a way. Or an artist. Um, which is, I know, how you think of yourself, certainly. If you, On a good day. Well, no, it's, it's, clear you've, uh, it's clear that you are. I want to actually save time to talk about The Dip, which is the book of yours that, that I interact with the most. Okay. Um, and I only read it once, but it has, every page of that book has stayed with me in a very deep, well, thank intense you. way. But I realize that people listening, and I, I realize where, um, you know, because doing what I do, and now I, I do a bunch of different things, but, the, you know, rejection early on is a part of it. I had great experiences understanding that experts knew nothing. Uh, when I learned that, it freed me from ever taking those kind of rejections personally. But 
when you were getting all those rejections, I understand, see, I understand now how you say I was just able to analyze it, but when it started, what was the self-talk you used to get yourself to that place? Well, there, there were a couple components. And again, you know, I can't strongly enough recommend, though it's a little dated now, some of the work of Zig Ziglar. I had 72 hours of his cassettes and I listened for two hours a day. And I had his goals planner, which made a huge difference to me. And I coined a phrase, for example, no for now, which means this isn't no forever. This is just this person in this moment with this piece of data says no for now. I had this understanding that every time on average uh, I got 99 no's, I was likely to get a yes. And so each no was one step closer to a yes. Yeah, I had, uh, I've been talking to a couple of different friends of mine who do th this kind of thing, and, and I had Mike Birbiglia in here the other day, the great sure. storyteller and comedian. And Birbiglia, in, this, uh, in his last movie, he talked about that the, the line between being a, a comedian and being delusional right. is very small. And, and I've, I said, as I said to him, I've said this in psychotherapy, that, that right up until I became a working screenwriter, I was delusional. It's, uh, uh, one could make the argument. Which is, okay, so let's dissect yeah. this because it's really important, really important. The first thing I would say is this. I understood from the very first minute I went out on my own that I needed to make a living. And I chose projects that were appropriately scaled. I chose industries that wanted to work with people like me. And so part of what it means to be delusional is to expect that you will be picked and to expect that when you will be picked, it will be at such a scale that everyone will marvel at it. That never happens. So those people are delusional. But if you pick the appropriate industry and you use the new tools of the internet to put your ideas in the world with generosity, then we'll be able to much more clearly differentiate between those who are delusional and those who aren't. And so I want to make, just clarify something because it sounds like what I'm proposing to people from a few minutes ago was keep spamming the world until someone buys something from you. Yeah. And that was culturally appropriate in 1986. If you could buy a stamp, you could send in something to a publisher. It is not culturally appropriate now. Now what you do is you make a YouTube video and you get eight friends to watch it. And if it's good, they'll share it with their friends. And after it's been seen by 10,000 people, your phone will ring. If the phone doesn't ring, you have to say, I made something that didn't work. And if you make something that doesn't work too many times in a row and you're not buying macaroni and cheese or brown rice for dinner, if you're needing more money, at that point, you might be delusional and thinking you have talent that you do not have. In area X. In area X. So go to another area as opposed to saying, I'm now going to live the life of a failure, proving to people how many screenplays I've actually I mean, written. That all makes so much sense to me. I, I, and I thought of you, um, you know, over the past couple of weeks and, and of, of tribes, in particular, your, your talk and then the, the book. Because, um, as you know, I started making Vines, these six-second screenwriting yes, lessons. you're a sensation. Well, uh, I, thanks for saying that. That's not exactly true. But, but I started making these little things, and this just totally proves, um, and I don't know if you're going to see where, exactly where this is going, but you, um, 
I started making these vines. People really started reacting positively to them. For every 50 uh, thank yous I got, there maybe would be one, uh, you suck. And uh, like you, I'm trained that the you sucks. I don't even hear them. They make me laugh. They don't, they I don't hear, affect I my I hear sense. them. I, I bleed. Don't, they like, don't, good for you. You do? You're better than me. What do you mean you bleed? I bleed. I, I have to insulate myself from them. I can't see them. I'm fascinated by I that. Have not, How do they penetrate? I have not read an Amazon review in three years. There's no reason to read them, but you're saying if you read them, and I'm not talking about the one written by the incredibly bright woman who actually understands a, a flaw, because you would actually like that. Cause yeah, it but there are you. none of those. Uh, but the screeds bug you? They they tap into like some primal fraud thing? Yeah. I mean, it's it's not just the fraud thing. It's the playground bullying thing. Right, but in this area where it, it's the, yeah, I know you know you've helped enough people that there's nothing fraudulent right. about what you do. That's why I'm saying right. I can't so imagine it. it's not the fraud thing. It's the bullying thing. There's two different things, right? That I got beat up enough times that I don't want to put myself into a, a place where I'm going to get beat up. So if I think that putting something in the world is likely to expose me to bullies, I tend not to do it. Well, so this happened to me where I... This, uh, and I wonder how you would have handled this, how you would advise or how you would have said. So I start doing these vines and I can see what my tribe is, right? The people who are responding. And I have a, 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 a really great conversation with this audience that uh, here on this podcast in the vines for my movies. And it's a, a, a exactly sort of like growing in a way that's very beautiful. Right. And a few weeks ago. And then, you know, on vines, I would do a vine. There'd be a couple of thousand um, likes or revines there would be comments, a hundred comments. Um, and out of those hundred comments, really 98 of them would be very positive and grateful. And a couple of weeks ago, Vine, it's great. We're doing your podcast, the one you want to do it. I'm telling you something, you're going to answer it. So where Vine chose one of mine, the 319th one I did, as their editor's pick. Uh -huh. They put it on the front page of their website for two... 10 days. Yeah. And they sent it to every single Vine user in the world. Millions of people. I didn't ask them to do that. Correct. In any way. I don't know anyone at Vine. I've interacted with one person who works at Vine who revined me within his feed. No way Vines grow are you watch my Vine. Right. Your people who follow you, if you revine me, it goes to them. Right. You're a, a, a very credible endorser. Of course. It's not spam. It's a double date. Right. You're saying, hey, I dig this guy. Yep. But the anger sure. that I've gotten back. And from the 13-year-old who has no, he doesn't have any interest in figuring out uh, yet how to be his most creative self. He's not blocked. Or from the 19-year-old or the, the and I, I get these, these uh, incredibly, so it's, it's now, that thing has been seen, you know, your TED Talks have been seen three, four, five million times. This thing's been seen 20 million loops. Yeah. And um, I think all the people who are angry are 100% right to be angry because... Because they were spam? They didn't ask for it. Yeah, angry is the wrong emotion. They're not, you're almost never right to be angry about anything, right? That they should be... Uh, that one of the challenges as someone who's been building the internet for 25 years is the long tail doesn't work without a short head. You can't economically make the short, the long tail work unless you have a central homepage where you can introduce people to new stuff. And the right way to do it is to say, oh, you just bought a Malcolm Gladwell book. You might like Dan Pink. That's the right way to do it. 
Right. The wrong way to do it is when I was at Yahoo, the homepage banner ad was always sold out. Right. Because people were looking for a shortcut, say, how much money do I have to pay to be on the homepage? Right. And so the thing to be angry about is not you. It's just go back to Vine and say, my attention is precious. You wasted it. Well, it's interesting. I So I, on the one hand, of course, was so grateful that like half of, of me was grateful that those guys singled it out because I obviously um, out of all those people, many people appreciated it, found me who wouldn't have found the, these and are engaging in this conversation. And I don't know that there would have been another, it would have taken three years probably to get to those people, but it was like a shotgun. It was like a shotgun blast. Right. And I was out of control. I couldn't control it. And it was, you know, the loss of that kind of control is hard. Oh, I totally understand. And that's why neither one of us should go on television. Why? Because television is a medium reserved for interrupting strangers who don't care very much, who are drive-by. And the new practice that people like us are engaging in is the opposite. Smart people, at least in our field, who are particular about who they're choosing to engage with over the long haul because they want to grow in a given direction and there's a mutual respect. Television is based on no respect, right? And this, right? We no, don't respect, changing. We don't no, respect the viewer no, because we interrupt them with commercials whenever we want to. We don't respect the viewer because we dumb things down because the producer says, this is a mass medium. You just made, so even Breaking Bad and Mad Men are dumbed down. That if they were making those shows for just the two people in this room, they would be more like The Prisoner, right? That The Prisoner failed because Patrick McGowan obsessively respected his audience that he wanted to be his audience. Twilight Zone failed too. Yeah. And so TV, even as it goes out to the long or longer tail, the model of TV as opposed to YouTube long tailness is we need more and more often leads to worse. Uh, yeah, I think TV, though, for me, Mad Men is just excellent, excellent. and I think Matt, why, it seems to me he fights those compromises at every turn. Sure, that's why he's great. And that's why he's great at what he does, and Breaking Bad's an incredible show, too. But I do think that in the non, I think a couple of things. One, I think that the, in the non-pay space, I mean, in the, in the pay space, in the non-commercial space. Right, but I, I think we can agree that that's not TV. That's not right. I would say it's not TV. And, and also, I think what Jimmy Fallon is doing, which, by the way, that, that's not necessarily the first you know, Seth Seth Myers, that's my favorite show. Seth is putting on an actual show that is total as different as Letterman was. His show is. And it's late enough at night that they don't nobody cares. Enough people will watch Seth and he's done enough good work for a long enough sure. time. But I don't think people are watching commercials now. And I think that uh, like I'm going on Bloomberg TV in two hours today, but they asked me to come on. I've done it a couple times now. And I, I think of it as if there are a few people out there who happen to be interested in this, I'll talk to them because they're still electing to turn on that show. Not disagreeing with that. I'm just saying to be good at television. Yeah. Right. So let's look at the food network. Okay. Yeah. Right. There's probably good food TV to be made good by our definition. It will not be made by somebody who wants to make TV work because TV has to be, well, I can show this to every single person on JetBlue and they'll think that's fine. You're right. The original Food Channel was great, though. The first two years of the Food Channel, 
when Mario was doing Molto Mario, sure. which was this intellectual exploration of a right. certain kind of food from Italy, he was talking as though he were on a PBS show without the need to go get those Exactly. Sponsors. But inevitably, it devolves. the pressures of TV. So what my point is that when we look at what's going on on the Internet, some people have a blog where it's easy to fight against the pressure. I would say your vine is like that because you don't have a boss or a sponsor who says more. But then you see the listicles and all that nonsense dumbing down what used to be news. Why is that happening? Because people who used to work in TV are saying this is the new mass medium. And I think our big hope here as creators is to say maybe if it's not ad-supported, this isn't a mass medium. Maybe it's a micro medium, and maybe it's a chance to find people who can spread words that we want to be spread. Because um, although this is a buzzword now that I'm sure is so loaded that people um, just flinch, because ultimately authenticity is the only thing, to me, the only thing left that people, or one of the only things left that ha uh, can attract people for a, like a long time and in a meaningful way is the sense that what you're bringing it matters to you, is real, and you're not doing something just to sell me or to get my eyeballs for a second. Do you, do you think that that's... Well, I wrote about the word authenticity last week. I think there's a difference between authenticity and consistency, that no one has been authentic since they were lying in diapers covered in poop because everything after that is a cultural response, and we make choices about who we are and what we believe in based on what we think will work at some level. And where we get upset with people is when they're inconsistent, when they change their story to grab some low-hanging fruit, when they pander to the thing in the moment. It's that. But that you, call... you don't think people can work to get back to an authentic state? I you, think... Don't think you're, uh, you don't think you're constantly, by turning down stuff you've turned down, by not marketing and branding Bigger, like the things sure. that you sometimes. Regret. I think I'm consistent, right. uh, but you don't think you're also driving towards the the most authentic form of what you actually think. Well, so this is the reason I want to. Yeah, I'm interested. Push on yes, this push. is because it lets people hide. How? In the following way: If you think that you were born to paint in oils, or you were born to speak the truth about income inequality, or you were born, it's just not true, right? That if Vincent Van Gogh were born today. He would not work in oil. So Steve Jobs had been born 500 years ago. He would have done something else. So what is the authentic version of Vincent van Gogh? There isn't one. What there is is someone who sought out a series of emotions that he could create for himself and gifts he could give to other people through his work. And what I'm getting at is, yes, we need to be consistent in honoring the truth of what we came to say. But I also know that if I had been born one block away from where I was born to different parents, or if I had been born in Yugoslavia, the fact that I'm here talking to you about these things would never have occurred. This is not the authentic expression of my Sure, DNA. you're talking about a kind of a platonic authenticity. Yeah, so let's and be clear I, but, about that. But I would talk about, but I'm, what I'm, yes, let's be, what I'm asking about is an absence of a certain kind of calculation. Short-term pandering. Yes, a yes. kind of calculation, and I, which is, last night I was watching these, Rye, we're doing this on, what's today, August uh, 15th, 15th. I don't know if this will be up in a week or, or something like that, but last night there was this, um, in Ferguson, Missouri, there was this uh, so horrible, horrible event. And it occurred to me that I was horrified as an American 
embarrassed to be an American. And uh, as an American, not, not embarrassed to be an American, but as an American, I felt embarrassment for what we allow to happen. Um, and I wanted to tweet it out there. I wanted to share because I, I had a friend I have, uh, who was there who went, a journalist who went. And I wanted to share how I was feeling. And I wrote this tweet. And I'm embarrassed to say that it took me a minute to hit send because in that minute I did a calculation, Correct. which was that I'm going to lose 500 followers. Uh, I'm uh, identifying in again as a liberal person. I'm going to, I, you know, the podcast audience doesn't want to hear. And then luckily for me, um, I always remember how I will feel afterwards if I allow that calculation to determine anything. And so I hit send on the, on the tweet. And of course, because it was an, uh, an actual expression and I happen to have written this 140 characters well, people were very appreciative that I did it. But, but I could see how, th how that's like almost a step away from my real, you know, if you can allow, it's very easy to go down the road away. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's start yeah, with Peter, ahead. start with Peter Singer. Okay? okay. So Peter Singer's famous thought experiment. You just got a new pair of Gucci loafers. You're walking down the street and, uh, it rained last night. You come to a girl, four years old, face down in a puddle, and she's drowning. And you have a choice. You can walk into the puddle, take your two seconds, you pick her up, she's going to live. But your that's, shoes will be ruined. And that one's easy. Well, but let's Right, see I know. Where that's it goes, right? Let's restart. Right, yeah, you start so, with the easy So then one. Peter says, all right, your $400 shoes are ruined. And you say, yeah, but I had to save her life. And Peter says, well, guess what? If you give me $400, I can save the life of 100 children who you will never meet. Now, if you buy that, then the question is, how can you ever go out for dinner ever again for the rest of your life? How can you eat anything but it's brown rice? It's a great rice question. Rice? We talk about it all the time. Last night, my son looked at me in the middle of, uh, after this whole thing, I, you know, he came home late and he looked at me and he said, uh, in our own language, he said, you know, Ralph, uh, how can you not be in prison? Of course, quoting Thoreau. And, uh, and it was exactly saying what you're saying, which is, yeah, that's fine, but why aren't we there in Ferguson? So the and, challenge is, and the only reason I'm bringing it up it is not because I'm a hypocrite or you're a hypocrite. It's because we always make calculations. There's just different flavors of calculations in, that we put in different buckets to permit us to function. How many steps removed from our most authentic self are, is the self that we're well, presenting? Who even knows what that is? Because like, I could tell you 40 topics you didn't tweet about last night that were even more urgent and more close to who you are as a human being that you didn't even consider. More urgent to me, you think. To you, that you didn't even consider because you got calculations before calculations before calculations. That I'm unaware of. Right. And if we all were spewing whatever felt authentic to us, we'd all have no followers. We'd all be walking down the street, you know, dressed in whatever we decided to wear that morning without regard for what other people thought. Right? I mean, none of it works. Society puts on top of us every morning a whole set of calculations. Right, which is why people shouldn't be afraid to be the artist that they are. So now we say, if we're going to calculate, let's calculate this way. Number one, you need to be consistent in order to be able to keep doing your work in a way that other people will appreciate. Because if you're a wandering generality, we don't know when to listen to you because who are you trying to please today? Right. Right? And that's why very few people went to, I'll throw out a name, Johnny Carson for emotional advice because Johnny Carson was just flapping in the wind with whoever he was sitting next to on TV 
doing that work. So what we say is, oh, no, there's certain things I will, quote, stand for. That's a calculation. There's certain choices I'm going to make about what I'm going to do, and I'm going to be consistent in them, right? But then we say, all right, what does it mean to be an artist? And for me, being an artist means you're doing human, generous work that might not work, that changes someone else for the better. Those are the four elements. Human, generous work that might not work, that changes someone, changes else, someone else for, for the, the better. better. I love that definition. And so, and you think we all have the capacity to do that? There's no question we do. Everyone listening to this told a joke when they were three, did something interesting with watercolors when they were five, told someone the truth when they were seven. Somewhere along the way, everyone has made something that meets all four of those criteria. And then we decide that society doesn't want us to keep doing that. I'm going to be respectful of your time, but can I have five more minutes? Sure, let's go. Okay, good. Because um, there are some things I wrote down that I, I feel like for, for people um, sure, who speed care round. about you. Okay. Yes. Can you just quickly then talk about the tension between shipping and perfection? Because you talk about the need to be remarkable. And you and, and there is and yes, we can all hold two thoughts in our heads. But you talk about the need to be remarkable and you talk about the need to get your work out there. So how do people do that math? Okay. Just do it is largely misunderstood as three words. But the yours key, is ship. Right. But just start came before ship it, right? Yes. Just some people think means what the hell. But that's not what it means, actually. It means the opposite of that. It means remove all internal fear, dialogue, stalling, and once that is gone, if it is time to bring it to the world, bring it to the world. Quality has a very specific meaning. Read Phil Crosby about quality, and what he said was, quality means adherence to specifications, not goodness, not wonderfulness, adherence to specifications. So perfectionists are hiding. Perfectionists say there is no level at which I will feel safe putting this in the world because there's always something that's not right about it, but they're not thinking about quality because what quality means is, is this good enough to ship? And the definition of good enough means good enough. Re remove delusion on both ends. Remove the delusion Correct. that you're a great genius and it has to be, uh, you know, you can, and remove the delusion that's the fear-based delusion, what if they reject me? And then be, 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 make a, the most rational judgment you can and then take in the information you get from shipping and improve. If you made the earth the size of a ping pong ball, it would be the smoothest, roundest substance in the history of everything. But it's got the Grand Canyon in it. Right? So it's obviously not smooth. But when you reduce it and aren't looking at it at that scale, it's perfect. Right. Yes. And that's, the way, that's what you're talking about, the tension. Okay. Um, what rewards do you still get from writing the blog every day? And who's your ideal reader? Uh, the daily practice is irreplaceable. Mm -hmm. Knowing that I need to tell myself something true in public every day is priceless. I would pay money to have a blog. Um, who is my ideal reader? people who are eager and open and uh, aren't going to uh, have a knee-jerk reaction to something that challenges the way they thought the world worked. What, what part of your message um, do you think sometimes gets missed or misstated? I, the biggest one is people who don't like bad marketers think I'm a marketer and they can dismiss everything I say. Um, I don't think I've ever been a bad marketer. I think I've been leading ethical marketing, but people want everyone to have a label, like your label is screenwriter man, 
right? And it's going to be 15 years of you doing other work before someone decides to give you a new label. So that's one. Um, and the second is they think I have an ulterior motive, that there's some sort of long con that I'm playing and that I've secretly come up with some other w reason I'm doing this other than I'm doing this because I care, because that's the only reason. Well, yeah, and I would just say to people, the way that I do that math about uh, people I don't know who are presenting some kind of, uh, something that could be lumped into a self-help category, is um, your motivations don't actually matter to me. Right. What matters is, are there tools that you're putting out into the world sure. that can help me to become a better version of me? Right. Oh, the use of the word me. So in your first speech uh, that you gave at TED, okay. you said, we don't have email. We have email. Did Apple take that from you or had they already... No, I invented that phrase. I have never heard Apple use it, but I invented well, that phrase. No, sure. their mail changed to me, me.com. All their email oh, yeah. is me mail now. But they don't call it me mail. They well, just but put they, me, yes. But they did. Did there's you ever make the connection? Of, there's to, all sorts of stuff Apple is stolen from me, and I'm delighted. Right, because it did occur to me that that's the first time I, I when I went back and watched everything, I, I think that's before a me.com Okay, existed. so let me explain how early this was. In 1990, 1989 is when I started doing work on the internet before there was a web browser. In 1992, when I was going to raise money for Yo-Yo Dine, I had to persuade people in suits with money. I had to persuade them that one day soon, people would actually have an email account. And you had me, you were already talking about me mail then? Yeah. All right, so I think Apple owes you something. I love Apple, but I Whatever. think that they owe you something. Um, is there anything we didn't cover that you think well, you, you know hanging. you and I could talk about this for 100 hours. Yes, but there's something that you want to communicate that you feel like uh, I didn't give you the opportunity to communicate. Um, I just, you know, I get invited to do podcasts a lot because there's a business model that says invite people who you'll get more subscribers, and I turn them almost all down. And the reason uh, that I came into the city to talk to you is because of your generosity and your insight. And I think that relentless generosity uh, is rare, and it's still underrated. And you are a prime example of how that can work. And watching you do it is thrilling. Oh, that's a wonderful thing for you to say. And you know I feel uh, that double for you. You've been incredibly generous with me. And I so appreciate it. Your book, The Dip, I, I just want to say to people, we didn't get to talk about it. Though some of the stuff we talked about, uh, about how to measure what you do and whether to quit or keep going is in that book. And, and, and for me, that book um, and, and the way in which it talks about um, are you on a hope, makes you examine whether you're on a hopeless endeavor or whether you're in the moment before success is, I think, a crucial book and that anyone in any pursuit can profit from listening to that book or reading it. It's a short one and it forces you to ask yourself very difficult questions. Uh, and the process of asking yourself those questions uh, will lead you to essential answers. So I just have to say to people, if all you had done, Seth, was write the dip, uh, you would have really accomplished something, but you've done much, much more than that. You can find Seth, his blog. First of all, you just put, put Seth into Google, and he's the first thing that comes Except up. Except for Seth Meyers catching up. I, oh, but, Seth catching up yeah, to you I, I hope not. We'll just keep repeating Seth, Seth, Seth. But your website? SethGodin.com. And Seth, who I've always called you Godin, but it's Godin. Seth is also uh, not really on Twitter. No, I just republished the blog because Twitter would make me unhappy. And you can subscribe to Seth's blog so you don't even have to go there and it just comes into your email. And that's what I do when I read it uh, every morning. 
Thanks for coming, Seth. A pleasure. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.